Welcome to the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. Join host Dr. Stefan Dillinger for lively discussions with leading epigenetics researchers. Hear about their past experiments, what they're working on now, and what's coming next. You know their papers, now get to know them and discover the stories behind the science. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Today I'm happy to welcome Alistair Böttiger from Stanford University on the show. Alistair, please let me briefly introduce you to our audience. You did your PhD with Michael Levine at UC Berkeley. You then did a postdoc with Shua Wei Shuang, Single Molecules Imaging Group at Harvard University. You then started your own lab at Stanford in 2016, and you are currently an assistant professor in the Department of Developmental Biology at the Stanford University School of Medicine, and you are a member of BioX at the Biophysics Program. A question I like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in biology in the first place and then in pursuing a career in science? Yeah, I think uh, I had the, the privilege actually to uh, grow up with scientists. Uh, while I was a, a child, my grandfather moved his lab to the Marine Biological Laboratories in Woods Hole. Uh, he actually studied the physiology of uh, insect flight, but I remember we would spend the summers up with him uh, and looking at seawater under the microscope or going to the salt marshes and looking at all of the uh, marine life. Uh, so like up until college, I think I still thought I would become a, a marine biologist. Uh, I thought that was really exciting and fun. Uh, and then things changed a little bit uh, in that uh, a lot of my course curricular stuff in biology was a little bit more memorization. I became really enamored with physics for a little bit uh, in, in college. Uh, it, I had a great cohort, very good teachers, and I loved the way they gave sort of fundamental, a few fundamental theories, or uh, we could derive a lot of uh, uh, non-intuitive phenomena about the, how the world works. And I found that really fascinating. But uh, it seems that you're still into marine topics because you have a little boat behind you in your in your living room so uh, the the love for the sea has not vanished that's right yeah i think that the love of the sea has not vanished <laughs> it's been fun to try to merge some of the interests or so the love of biology has come back and i've tried to fuse with it some of the themes uh of uh modeling the physical world as well so let's talk about your science uh, that centers around transcription control and 3D genome organization with a focus on imaging, imaging and not like sequencing as compared to what most people are doing nowadays. So let's start with a nature paper from the year 2016. Uh, there you investigated the 3D organization of chromatin in different epigenetic states using super resolution imaging. Um, can you talk about the study and what you found? Yeah, uh, this was... Uh Uh, one of the major outcomes of my my postdoctoral work and uh, my postdoctoral work with uh, uh, Professor Xiaowei Zhang, I had I had gone to try to understand better uh, the spatial organization of the genome because that is something I've gotten very enthusiastic of during my PhD in understanding cis-regulation uh, with Mike Levine. So the uh, the original vision, which is not what it came out in the paper, was we were going to try to understand the enhanced promoter interactions, because that was what I, I had studied as a, a PhD student. That's what I pitched in Xiaowei. We were going to use the super resolution microscopy to resolve these interactions. Uh, and in that work, we didn't quite get down to the scale of the enhanced promoter interactions, but we were with Storm able to see a lot more structure uh, in 
different portions of the genome that correlated with the, the epigenetic marks uh, that uh, in that portion of the, the genome. So we, we expanded the study a little beyond uh, uh, and focus at enhanced promoter interactions and just what are the uh, scaling laws in the, uh, how does the amount, the size of the uh, genetic, the, the uh, domain actually uh, scale with the, what uh, epigenetic marks are there. Uh, and we found that uh, there's different types of packaging for different types of chromatin. In particular, for example, the uh, uh, inactive chromatin had a very natural scaling uh, that uh, was uh, uniform with volume. So twice as much chromatin took up twice as much volume, independent of the actual length uh, of the unit. And this is an organization that was uh, quite uh, consistent with one of the dominant models at the time, which is for this sort of fractal globular packaging, the self-similar organization of the genome. Is it also, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, is it also independent of the state the chromatin is in? So yeah. your chromatin versus heterochromatin, would it have the same space then? So then we found uh, indeed that uh, as the chromatin was more heavily enriched in uh, euchromatic marks uh, like K4 trimethylation or dimethylation, uh, we get a, a significantly different scaling that actually grows uh, faster uh, so that uh, larger amounts of chromatin actually take up uh, twice the amount of chromatin, takes up more than twice the volume. And that's actually the organization you expect uh, in uh, many polymer models, a, a random walk polymer or a self-avoiding random walk polymer, both exhibit these uh, types of growth. I like to call it a disorder type of growth in that uh, if I just, as a packaging analogy, if I was packing my suitcase uh, and I have more stuff to put in, I throw it in kind of randomly. Uh, the bigger the volume, the less efficient I get the packing, and the, the uh, twice the amount of stuff takes up more than twice the volume. But that's the sort of packaging we found in the active chromatin. Mm -hmm. But I mean, it's also nice to see that um, the theoretical model or the the image that you get in your head also holds true in those measurements, right? I mean, uh, you say that if, if heterochromatin is compact more closely, then it also should visually be closer together than your chromatin? Yes. I was surprised to the degree to which we see some some universality, some generalizations across the genome. That uh, So in this work, we imaged about 50 different portions of the genome and then characterized them into their sort of three primary different epigenetic marks, highly enriched in active, uh, enriched in polycomb marks, which is a repressive silencing, or uh, enriched in neither of those. Uh, and all three of those, uh, actually, the median radii of duration fit nicely along a, uh, a, a power law, a rather smooth power law scaling. So you then followed up on the study by reporting an imaging method for tracing chromatin organization with kilobase and nanometer scale resolution, unveiling chromatin conformation across those famous uh, TATs, so topologically topologically associating domains in thousands of individual cells. Um, so how does this approach work? Yeah. Uh, so what this was uh, uh, enabled by some uh, technology we had uh, also developed in the Zhang lab in collaboration with uh, a couple of really fabulous uh, postdocs, particularly uh, Jeff Moffat and Stephen Wang, uh, and a graduate student, Hao Chen. We had developed a uh, sequential and multiplex label in approach for RNA. And this gave us uh, an alternative approach for trying to actually also look at uh, 
uh, DNA because uh, by sequentially labeling things, not only can you separate many species, which was important for us in RNA, how many different uh, molecular species or different transcripts can you identify? But uh, if these are instead sequences, we can separate the different sequences and the sequential labeling uh, would achieve the same resolution boost that we get from, from storm by separating in uh, time in the image what we can't separate uh, in space. So as I should say something briefly on the, the challenge in trying to image chromatin in the nucleus uh, with fluorescent labels is this problem of diffraction. Fluorescent labeling is great for its specificity. We have wonderful probes. We can get them into the sample really well. But uh, because of the diffraction limit of light, the size of area illuminated on the detector, uh, even for a single probe, is much larger than the 10 nanometer chromatin fiber that we were trying to follow. Uh, and Storman proved that using a stochastic blinking and using a sequential labeling instead of a stochastic blinking of dyes, uh, we were are able to kind of walk down the chromosome one step at a time. Uh, and uh, while we were doing, I was actually wrapping up the storm and we were coming up to this, my buddy Jeff had said, you know, oh, you're Alistair, you're doing this blobology. What we really want to do is monology uh, rather than have a cloud. Can we have uh, a trace? Uh, and uh, my colleague Stephen was the first to try this at the, uh, at the chromosomal scale. And then uh, working with a graduate student, uh, Bogdan Bintu, I uh, subsequently moved this down to the uh, the scale of the genes that I was really interested in, the scale of tags, the scales of kilobases to megabases. So by having like this walking along the chromosome, you would be able, so are you doing this by different colors or how, how do you do this? By different yeah. probes and then labeling those probes with different colors? Exactly, the trick is to uh, first fix the cell and then a traditional method would have been to just do colors. So like you can have a red spot, a green spot, a blue spot. The problem with fluorescence microscopy is quickly run out of colors. Uh, so then to get over this limitation, uh, what we had developed with the RNA is instead to use the ability to add and remove probes. And as long as the sample remains fixed, you can label one. And then if you strip it off and you put the one next to it, uh, it's in a different round. We can pseudo color it a different color, but it's uh, it's it's as distinct as if it was in a, a different uh, uh, color. It's actually a little more accurate too. If you do this all with one color, you can avoid all of the chromatic aberrations that also happen with changing colors, which in this becomes either correcting those chromatic aberrations to very high accuracy, better than your lens does by a significant margin, or by ignoring them entirely. By using a single color, you can really push the resolution down in this kilobase scale. And would you then need to process the images further or would the method alone give you this advantage? Yeah, so in principle then just this uh, tracing gives you the resolved images to actually create a, a trace or an image out of it when it needs to find the, the center of all of those little spots as mm -hmm. you walk down the genome, which is uh, a similar type of processing that we do in uh, other uh, super resolution microscopies like Storm of Palm. So the, the thing every I'm always saying everybody, but the thing people that do sequencing nowadays want to do is go, go at the single cell level, right? But micro, microscopy at, per definition is like a single cell method, right? You're looking at single cells and the challenge here is to image as many cells as possible to get like meaningful data probably. Uh, and and <laughs> uh, So is this rather an advantage or a challenge? What would you say? 
Yeah, that's a great question. I think ultimately, I think that particularly moving to the sort of sequential imaging regime has really helped scale up the throughput of cells. And I like an analogy on the method here in that the, the actual raw data collection and processing is exquisitely similar to what's going on inside that aluminum machine too. Uh, you are, in, Instead of uh, sequentially adding uh, nucleotides that have uh, fluorescent signals uh, into- You're at the probes. Yeah. We're just adding probes, but again, uh, Otherwise, it's uh, still a fluidic system hooked up to a camera and a mobile stage. It's just in situ. Uh, and we're not sequencing base by base. We're sequencing little oligobarcode by oligobarcode, which is attached to a number of bases. So on the, on the throughput on uh, cells, uh, in current experiments, we typically do in 1,000 to 10,000 uh, cells uh, in a uh, couple-day uh, experiment. The throughputs uh, improved in part because of the some of the improvements in cameras, but also in moving away from the uh, the storm approach. We don't need to have extremely high laser powers, which really limited the field of view, uh, as well as some of the single molecule floor cameras. Uh, so I think this has helped a lot for the throughput, and that that uh, has still a, a long way to go. I think technologically, one of the main limitations to uh, another. 10 or 100 fold change in the throughput is as much the data storage and data processing. We're already into the terabyte to sometimes 10 terabyte in a single experiment and uh, analyzing and processing and storing that starts to add up. And that's an exciting area where the, there is, uh, I think, the, some good innovation going on. So when, we go, when I went to your website, um, there is a, a nice image of I think it's a microscope. I don't know exactly what what it is because it really looks like handmade at some point. <laughs> so is it really that when you yeah building up your your microscope that there is some handcrafting involved, or is this out of the box from a vendor that you use, or is it also because you're into biophysics that you that you're yeah crafting them yourselves? Yeah, I would say it's more historical. So so we do assemble our own instruments. Uh, the microscopes. Uh, I think the the advantage of that is that it uh, it it does give you a little bit more flexibility in the design and let one stay at the uh, the edge of the technology. So as you know, cameras get better, or there's a nice there's a new camera that has the detection efficiency and the wider field of view. It's something one can adopt more readily as a home builder and not wait for uh, Zeiss or Olympus or Nikon to. Uh, adopt that uh, latest uh, technology, which might lag uh, a little bit uh, before it's integrated into the new release model or something. Uh, you don't have to buy a new microscope system. The trade-off is you have to uh, uh, do your own alignment and maintenance on the systems. So they have similar capabilities as to what one can get on uh, commercial systems. I think they give us a little bit more flexibility in the building, upgrading, and uh, design and we have just the components we need to do the task we're trying to do rather than all of the bells and whistles to do mm. uh, many different things. We try to make more purpose-built scopes as opposed to masters of everything. So next you described a method called optical reconstruction of chromatid architecture, short for short ORCA. So is this the same method as the one we talked about just now or was this like a follow-up and improvement on that? 
Yeah, this, it, I would say the, 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 the details of the methods are steadily improving, uh, but uh, it, it is really the same method. It's the same sequential labeling. We saw a couple of the uh, methods start to get some more names. And in our, in our case, this is a, both a pushback from some reviewers saying this uh, chromatin imaging method needs its own uh, uh, name. And I think some of our uh, colleagues and competitors who are working through uh, similar approaches, and it, it's been a really fun, uh, supportive, I think, community that we we inspire and borrow from each other, uh, propose some some similar names or, for, or some alternative names also for conceptually similar sequential labeling. But the major improvements have been uh, in improving the efficiency and the resolution. So as we move to that work from the 2018 work, we improved the resolution down from 30 KB, where we start to see the tads, down to 3 KB, where we can really resolve some of the smaller tads and some of the enhancer promoter interactions. Can you share some, some results that you got using this method? Yeah. So uh, this, I thought, was uh, actually quite exciting applying in the uh, Drosophila embryo. The Drosophila embryo has been a, a really a power tool system for understanding enhancer promoter interactions. Uh, but uh, it had fallen behind, I would say, a little bit in the era of genomics and, and HiC in particular, because each individual embryo has only a small number of cells doing any particular uh, tissue. Uh, and being able to uh, sort out the uh, different cell types is also still uh, quite a challenge and would then also require quite a lot of deep sequencing to get enough coverage and a lot of dissection. So we don't actually have good cell type resolved contact maps uh, even to this day from the sort of high C and three C approaches that were still providing some of the real power tools for understanding the, the three-dimensional genome organization. Nonetheless, genetics had given us a bunch of hypotheses and some feuding hypotheses on how differential uh, folding of a few of the uh, major developmental control loci was, uh, might or might not help uh, explain those, those phenotypes. So we, we looked at one of these. We looked at the Bythorex complex, which has uh, been famous in Drosophila biology for a while. These are the contains uh, three of the Hox genes that control the anterior-posterior patterning uh, and uh, conserved from, from flies up through uh, humans in that role. Uh, and we found that the, they're actually with three genes. Nonetheless, the fly creates 10 distinct body segments, each which have different expression levels of these three genes. And we find in each of these 10 segments uh, a distinct uh, three-dimensional folding of the locus. And uh, in each of those 10 cases, too, uh, the agreement of the spatial organization with the uh, known genetic results of what happens if instead you knock reporter genes across the locus is just marvelous. Uh, the spatial boundaries agree uh, is a perfect one-to-one -one correspondence with the genetically mapped boundaries of just knocking things in. So it's a, a very satisfying uh, uh, yeah, I just wanted to ask, it must be very satisfying to see that two orthogonal methods give exactly the same result, right? Yes, yeah, absolutely. And here I really like because the the one of the orthogonal methods, the genetics knocking in the probes is really being read out in the live responding organism uh, as it develops. Uh, uh, it has also been really satisfying. I, I was quite surprised to see when we first mapped it in the, at the 30 KB scale, the, the agreement between the high C sequencing-based approaches uh, and the microscopy. 
at that time in 2018, there was still some controversy on to what extent microscopy and high C really measured the same thing. Some papers suggested, you know, somewhat different conclusions uh, from uh, the results. Uh, and uh, if I uh, compute the contact map from the purely the microscopy data and I were to permute them, I, I'm quite certain I could fool the audience into uh, which is which. Uh, and I was I was blown away by the the similarity here. I thought the microscopy was going to have many artifacts introduced by like denaturing the DNA and hybridizing these probes and the high C was going to have all sorts of sequencing and sequence amplification artifacts. Uh, and that these were going to thus push the two methods to give very different results. But uh, the, the agreement is quite remarkable. Mm -hmm. So then, um, yeah, you just said that you looked at this uh, this cluster and you found all those uh, similarities, uh, but you also looked at the connection of the 3D structure that you found of chromatin and then the transcriptional output. Um, this was published in eLife in 2021. Um, and you proposed a new model of enhanced and mediated transcriptional regulation. Can you talk about this new model? Yeah. Uh, one of the things we had uh, uh, looked at in the data in the, the, the 2019 paper was to uh, see the nascent transcription and the mature transcription in each cell at the same time measure its three-dimensional structure. So what we tried to do in this, this next paper was to leverage better some of the uh, tools of uh, machine learning uh, to understand uh, the relation. Uh, and one of the interesting things that... Uh, uh, we were trying to explain uh, was that while there is a very nice correlation between the structure and the expression state, uh, the degree of change uh, that you see when you uh, mutate a boundary, for example, and we, we fuse two tabs, uh, was still more subtle on the structural front than on the uh, expression front. So to be a bit more concrete, uh, what uh, some one of the borders that we focused on in this uh, eLife paper to try to understand is the uh, between the genes uh, ABA and UBX uh, and uh, in cells that have a, a, a common 3D fold. Nonetheless, the anterior and the posterior cells give different levels of these two genes. The anterior ones expressing more UBX and the uh, posterior more ABA. Uh, and if we uh, mutate the uh, border between them, we had much more similar levels uh, of both genes. So this was very consistent with uh, more uh, crosstalk, uh, but the actual absolute change in contact frequency has only increased by like a factor of two, which is to say on the population average, these tags are quite visible structures that are nicely separating the UBX domain and the ABDA domain, but on the cell-to-cell -cell level, uh, individual cells from each population are still making sporadic contacts across these borders. These borders are not pure uh, walls. Uh, so we tried to understand how does these subtle changes in uh, contact frequency end up with two-fold change in contact frequency end up with a five-fold or ten-fold change in gene expression. Uh, and uh, this was primarily a, a simple theoretical analysis trying to say uh, what is the simplest model then gives this sort of nonlinear behavior. And if we take the model, I think I had it as a working model in mind, and much of the community, I think, also has done some uh, intuition building off of that every time the enhancer 
interacts with the promoter, this is the triggering event to launch transcription. Uh, it's uh, impossible to explain why uh, doubling the contact frequency can more than double the transcription rate. But if you let the promoter do something, have a little bit of a memory, if it accumulates something every time the enhancer interacts, and it's the amount of this accumulated factor that determines the frequency of the transcriptional firing, uh, it is uh, then quite easy for the system to uh, emerge these uh, nonlinearities. And this was actually a very satisfying uh, prediction in that uh, from that one observation, uh, we can explain predict not only this uh, this nonlinear relation that we were left with trying to explain from our former data, but also uh, uh, it gives a prediction of how some enhancers might appear to jump over intervening promoters. It gives a prediction of some hysteresis in what should happen if I suddenly change the structure, uh, that it might take some time for the promoter to respond. Uh, and it was quite satisfying. I was actually at a Cold Spring Harbor meeting while presenting this work, and uh, Luca Giorgetti came up to me and he said, oh, we must talk. You know, this is really similar. And he actually was doing this beautiful experiment uh, at the time, which uh, they were hopping the enhancer of SOX2 to different distances away from the promoter at an exogenous locus. Uh, and they saw this precise uh, type of uh, uh, hypersensitive switching. Uh, uh, and uh, we're also uh, thinking of a similar sort of integration uh, model to explain it. So it's another nice convergence of some of the the uh, theory uh, and experiment. Well. Yeah, nice, nice that you mentioned Luca. I already called him, uh, called him up, and and made an appointment with him for another interview. So he will be on the on the podcast soon, which will be then a nice uh, uh, cross reference here. Um, and this also, what you just said is is like, um, yeah. This, showing again that um, single cell work has its place and needs to be viewed in its own lights. Population-based methods like HiC needs need to be viewed in their own light and, and the data need to be interpreted carefully, right? Because they look at different things and then you can see different things, right? Absolutely. And they have sort of uh, some different strengths for different aspects of the problems. So yeah, for example, uh, I think it, it, it's quite satisfying that uh, both the, the, the ORCA and the HIC, for example, give us very similar patterns of TADS if we try to map TADS. But uh, as we dive into interpreting some of the single cell traces, we were also struck by there is a lot more variability in the individual cells that can get further away from their average some of these cell differentiations may occur with what appear to be very nice changes in the uh, tab boundaries at the population level, but the single cell data shows you that this uh, separation uh, is is not uh, sharp on the cell-to-cell -cell basis and is probably sampled out in, in time, which is another really exciting investigation uh, in the field, understanding these sort of temporal dynamics. But even understanding the cellular heterogeneity within each group, I think, is uh, caused us at least to think a little bit differently about how we uh, we uh, rationalize what is a TAD and what is a, what is an insulator, what are these borders, and they come up with these new models like we were just discussing, mm -hmm. all these hypersensitive responses. So you already said that you are generating a massive amount of data, right? And to analyze those, I think it's fair to say that doing this by hand is, is nearly impossible, right? So what you did is using a deep learning approach to better understand what degree of chromatin structure relates to transcription state of individual cells. 
Uh, this was published, I think, in 2021. Um, so is deep learning back then what AI is now? <laughs> or how is it different? And, and what, what is deep learning in, in this uh, context? I, I think these are uh, perhaps coming out of some of the same fields. Uh, in, the, in this context, we used uh, convolutional neural nets, which have been uh, one of the uh, learning methodologies that has proved particularly effective on uh, analysis of uh, imaging data and, and, and computationally reasonably efficient. Uh, but uh, uh, And I, I think this is a, a growing uh, area of exploration uh, for the field. For me, what was also uh, an exciting part of that project and a growing area of exploration are uh, learning associated methods, just kind of cracking open the black box and asking what are the predictive uh, features uh, and interactions that the model that the learning algorithm has found in the data. And this is a different approach rather than starting with the sort of hypotheses we had as biologists, like, oh, the proximity of the enhancer to the promoter must be important. So let's look at that proximity and see how well that correlates with transcriptional bursts. And it correlates, uh, but uh, somewhat weakly. Uh, and in part, that is weak because there are multiple enhancers and promoters. Uh, but rather than... Uh, try each one as a hypothesis, what the learning mechanisms let us do is ask, what does the model find to be the most predictive? Uh, and there we can find evidence that the, uh, uh, for example, on this bithorax locus, on the activation, uh, the model does learn that a lot of the enhancers are local, but it likes to uh, measure, it's interested in multiple distances at once. Uh, and rather satisfyingly, it can do a pretty good prediction. Its accuracy is not particularly damaged by even blanking out individual enhancers. So uh, the domain structure as a whole, rather than the position of any single element, is still relatively predictive to the uh, structure. And these give you some new hypotheses to then cycle back into experiment to see if the things the model is using as predictive features are actually causal or maybe their their downstream consequences of the transcription event and maybe the things that i'm asking now are the things that come out came out of this uh, because just a few weeks ago in may 2023 there was a paper published in molecular cell talking about loop stacking in tads and i also saw another paper uploaded to bioarchive archive in february 2023 describing boundary stacking in tads so um, I don't think that those this, these are the same papers, but are those related? And what is the difference between boundary stacking and loop stacking? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Uh, so I think there is a really very similar uh, theme here, which is not what we set out to explore at these uh, two loci. Uh, but uh, one of the things we've uh, observed in, in in a number of our data sets is the so you get a you get a polymer trace so that you can actually see the three D path. Uh, you can see that there, that path sometimes reintersects itself. So that is a loop in the conventional understanding of uh, a loop. Uh, and that uh, frequently multiple loops share uh, the same uh, border. They share the same base. They like to stack on each other. Uh, and uh, at uh, some, uh, at loci where there aren't a lot of uh, boundary sites, we still see this happen, but the positions of the base of those loops are highly variable cell to cell. 
But something interesting happens uh, when these are, are border sites. Uh, I think this was particularly striking in the in the case of this uh, preprint uh, in which we've been studying the, the PIDX1 uh, domain. What we were trying to understand was this distal enhancer that's more than 300 kilobases away, and it's got a couple little tad borders in between it that are nicely marked by CTCF sites. And we wanted to know how can it reach that promoter on the other side, because tads had turned out to be quite a good predictive feature for the uh, range of uh, effect of uh, which an enhancer can act on. So we found that these uh, uh, different tad borders, in this case, the boundaries preferentially like to stack together. Uh, and uh, I think this actually turns out to be a natural uh, prediction of uh, a loop extrusion view of uh, uh, genome folding in the special case where there's enough cohesin and its residence time is long enough, at least by the time it reaches the CTCF, uh, so that they can start to collide into each other. Uh, and the, the view that emerges of these stacked borders is that uh, uh, if we have multiple cohesins that have extruded from border to border and are holding together, then a series of cohesins that have all pulled their borders together can bridge, can stack those boundaries and pull together those outermost uh, promoter and enhancer so that they can now uh, start to interact. And if the, the boundary happens to stabilize that cohesion, this will be, be even more efficient. But that sort of model at least nicely explains this significant enrichment we saw for these three-way interactions among borders that are much more uh, stable. And in uh, the work in molecular cell, we were examining uh, some, some other loci in mouse embryonic stem cells that also have these uh, multiple uh, CTCF sites that separate them. We also see a, a preferential stacking of the CTCF sites. And this we can show is indeed CTCF dependent and cohesin dependent using degrons. So do you see other factors at those sites other than cohesin and CTCF or is it just those that give the structure or do you have like, I don't know, pol 2 waiting there for doing stuff or is it just the structural proteins? Yeah, it's a fabulous question. Uh, in all of these examples, uh, several of those border sites are also uh, promoters. In particular, in each of them, the, the dominant gene, the locus, is uh, not only in the domain, it's sitting at the borders of one of those domains. So the promoter itself is one of the things that likes to stack up with these other border elements. And then those other border elements, uh, in addition to binding CDCF, at least some of them, and some of the ones that skip borders, are uh, Enhancers, in the case of uh, PIDX1, that enhancer is actually active in that hymen tissue we were studying. In, in the case of the recently published uh, data on TOXA and SOX2, some of those will be enhancers in later cell types. But uh, for example, in the HOXA, at that state, the genes are silent, but they're still stacked up next to uh, some of their, uh, what will be their, their late acting enhancers. Uh, so. I quite suspect there are other proteins there. We're very interested in following up what's happening to it, some of those intermediate borders that get hopped over. I think some of them play an important role in that, for example, at HOXA, they separate some unrelated genes from one another. Uh, also in the PIDX1, this distal enhancer kind of hops over another housekeeping gene in the middle that also gets partitioned away from the uh, 
target gene by these uh, intervening boundaries. So I think they play an important boundary role, and maybe they have auxiliary proteins that actually help further facilitate the bypass, for example, by stabilizing uh, cohesin. Mm -hmm. Now, this already is partly the, the answer to my next question. So what are your plans for the future? So let's say maybe for the next five years. Yeah. So I'm very interested in uh, getting a, a deeper understanding of these elements that uh, uh, were first called insulators based on genetic experiments of their ability to block uh, uh, an enhancer. And we found uh, the, many of the elements uh, that uh, met this genetic definition are preferentially also creating tad borders, but to understand is this a, is this a broader? Are there multiple classes of uh, this uh, enhancer blocking activity, and can it occur by distinct biophysical mechanisms? Uh, in particular, we're interested whether some insulators preferentially favor uh, long range bypass while supporting local blocking, uh, and others uh, can just generally block. Uh, all cross interactions. And we've been working both on biophysical models as well as uh, trying to uh, understand uh, genetically why some of the some of the borders do preferentially allow these contacts past them and, and others, uh, others don't. Mm -hmm. uh, another question which we, we didn't get into today, which is, uh, I think, related is better understanding the uh, relation of the three dimensional genome structure and the epigenetic state of chromatin. Uh, and this extends back a little to that uh, work we opened up with on the yeah, 2016 story. But I think there is some really important feedback going on uh, between these two. Uh, and uh, we'd love to understand that better. There's beautiful correlations in the three-dimensional structure as you change the epigenetic state. Uh, and uh, some emerging evidence to suggest the uh, epigenetic state uh, stability is also dependent on the uh, its own ability to refold that domain. So epigenetic state, meaning the signature of histone post-translational modifications that yes. are put on, on, on a given locus. Exactly. Uh, so to finish off this interview, I have two more general questions. Uh, the first one, did you at one point of your career face a situation that you have reached a dead end? Or did you always have more ideas than problems? I think for sure there have been always more ideas than problems. There are definitely sticky problems that we would uh, we would love to uh, improve and uh, do better on. But I guess the 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 the, the plethora of problems have always provided uh, good opportunities to pivot. So in the last forty minutes, we have taken a journey through your scientific career. Can you maybe give a short summary about your most important findings or something that we might have missed in this interview? For me, I think uh, one of the general take-homes has been that the, the exciting uh, insights of science or some of the exciting practice still happen on the uh, on the margins or the interfaces between disciplines. Uh, and I think that has been uh, a, a theme in, in my work and uh, those of some of the colleagues who have really uh, inspired us, uh, whether that be the interface of uh, technological innovation in microscopy and applying that to understand questions in gene regulation and chromatin structure or the interactions between uh, biophysical theory and sort of bottom-up modeling uh, and uh, high-throughput imaging data. But I very much like the, uh, the interactions between uh, systems. Yeah. 
Thank you, Alistair, for your time and for being on the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. We hope you enjoyed it. You can find all the mentioned references in the show notes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us your feedback on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at activemotif.com, and we'll give you a shout-out in a future episode. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog at activemotif.com forward slash blog. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned.